Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 8. The Golden Thread It took me months, well, perhaps truthfully years, to recover from my time in Japan. Like the beautiful Japanese art form, kintsugi, golden joinery, or kintsukuroi, golden repair, my challenge now was to find a way to heal the broken parts of me and to continue to live well in this deeply inaccessible world that I was immersed in. I had certainly found a boundary and a very real limit to my ability to do whatever I wanted in the world. I had faced a fierce lesson in which I chose to keep pushing those limits, ignored the warning signs, and, yes, blindly stepped over the edge. While large parts of me had been broken apart while I lived in Japan, I had also encountered some of the most beautiful things. These deeply spiritual Japanese memories and visceral sensations of sight, sound, and smell I now treasure as points of light in the dark. I still find them to be healing and soothing to this day. One golden memory I had was of the time my second host family had taken me on holiday to a mountain deep in rural Japan. Growing up in New Zealand, I was very familiar with beautiful forests of native flora, of course. In fact, mum had belonged to the progressive environmental group, the Native Forest Action Council, a more radical breakaway from forest and bird, so we had incredible opportunities to visit out-of-the-way locations throughout New Zealand at different times in our teenage years. But nothing could have prepared me for the breathtaking beauty I was about to witness. Before me, surrounding me and transforming me, was an entire forest of maple trees, all exuding brilliant radiant colour. This was a vast mountain where every square metre appeared to be completely covered in the autumnal glow of golden maple trees. The amber light shone from the sun in the sky off the leaves on the trees and on the fallen leaves scattered in a lacy carpet upon the ground. As we slowly walked through the forest, the quality of the light and air felt delicate and utterly exquisite. To this day, I can see and feel this divine setting of liquid gold and immediately transport myself back. I also had the privilege of visiting one of the masters of Japanese earth-fired pottery in the ancient area of Mashiko. There, hidden amongst a forest of dark trees, was a long kiln unlike any I had seen before. It snaked its way up from the master's beautiful wooden house that was utterly empty except for his tatami mats, then along the sloping hillside and through the trees. The cool forest air was filled with the scent of cedar incense and slow-cooked earth. The master was simply going about his work, seeming almost unaware of our presence. This was a place dedicated to silence, creativity, 
and being at one with nature. I feel blessed and connected having witnessed this special and sacred setting. I came home with a Japanese aesthetic, a beautiful golden thread intrinsically woven through my being. The transformative aspect of kintsugi is that we must break apart in order to let in the light. We then have the opportunity, should we choose to accept it, to carefully and respectfully study and treasure each piece before reassembling it into a new whole that is held together by pure gold. Growing in me were the seeds of an emerging curiosity and a deep interest in Buddhism and the concept of being at one with the world and in harmony with nature and each other. Most of the time in Japan I had felt very alone, but although I did not know it then, I now know that the English word alone originally meant all one. It is about deep interconnectedness. So how could I now be at one with my world? After my gruelling experience in Japan, where I felt unable to control virtually anything in my life, it made sense that I would now want to do something which I could directly influence in some way. I also wanted to find a way to live and work that really suited me. Mini. It dawned on me that a conventional nine-to-five job might not suit me. Not because of my eyesight, but actually because of my temperament. I was starting to explore two critical parts of me. In order to have a good life, I needed to understand who I was, my inner essence, and what I, Mini, needed if I was to thrive. And in addition, I also had to understand what I needed as blind Mini, how to live well in the presence of Starguards. My challenge was to clearly see myself and all my many parts, and then to integrate these parts of me to create an authentic mini in the world. While the thought of sitting in an office from nine to five made me feel ill, I cannot categorically say that this had anything to do with my sight. My heart, my soul, my spirit hated being shut up in air-conditioned offices with strict protocols and timekeeping, feeling watched and monitored. The mere thought of this type of environment made, and still makes, me panicky and anxious. There was an emerging understanding awakening in me that in order to thrive and be the best mini I could be, I needed to feel free and not be dictated to by others. It was growing stronger every day. I know today that any entrepreneur, whatever their area of focus, would probably say something similar. And probably, so would any creative person or artist. My path in life would be shaped as much by this aspect of my being as it would by my eyesight and our inaccessible world. Today I can see that these two aspects or facets of me have intertwined and interacted. They have created a personality and a dynamic that has resulted in an unconventional life path for me. It has deeply influenced my approach to both my work and to social change. For all sorts of reasons, I now know I did not, and do not, and will never, easily slot into or fit into many aspects of conventional life. This is possibly why one manager, the last one I have ever had, said to me at my work leaving event, I am glad not to be your manager anymore. You will either go completely feral, or go on to do something truly amazing with your life. Quite a leaving speech. This is also why today I feel the need to invite all of us to have a much richer and multi-dimensional way of thinking about people with access needs. 
particularly in the worlds of policy and design, we run the risk of reverting to thinking about blind people as all the same, and as wheelchair users as all the same. We even use the term disabled community with little recognition of the extraordinary, rich diversity of personalities, life values, core beliefs, preferences and ways of being within that community. Until we truly understand the diversity and the many facets of this community, we will never create a truly accessible world. I certainly did not have this language in 1991. What I did have was a dawning sense that there were complex parts of me vying for attention. My job was to listen to them, try out different ways of being in the world, and then over time, hopefully achieve greater clarity about the world and my place in it. In 1991, I found a sunny, airy studio flat in an old villa on the Wellington waterfront and enrolled in a Be Your Own Boss course through the Wellington City Council. I had moved back to Wellington after several months at home in Palmerston North, where I slowly recovered from my Japanese ordeal. I was now 21, still so young, but actually I felt so incredibly old. I felt as if I had lived my whole life already. I had lost a lot of my spark. I had to rebuild many, piece by piece. I now wanted to equip myself with the skills to set up and run my own business, and to find a way to be independent with my work life. I had a memory of setting up stalls on the side of the street as a child, then going door to door with my neighbours when sales needed to pick up. And I recalled that odd job business when I was at university. One day at a party, I told someone I was chatting to that I wanted to set up my own food caravan and coffee cart. He laughed and abruptly dismissed me. People always say things like that, he said. But then they never actually follow through and do it. Wow. Thankfully, he had really pissed me off. He'd made the mistake of trying to box, limit, and define me. In that moment, I felt a spark return and my steely determination rise up again. It was much like the time when I was 15, and my friend had told me I would never be a good long-distance runner. I resolved that no matter what, I would start my own cafe out of a caravan. It turns out that not only did I set it up, but I maintain that I was the first in New Zealand to do so. A friend of a friend had an abandoned caravan parked up in an empty lot, not far from where I was living with my boyfriend in Aro Valley in Wellington. It needed a lot of work to be made cafe-worthy. I personally painted the entire outside, including some very clumsy sign writing with the name Mini Ha Ha, written in gold letters against the rich green surface. I also stripped the floor, put in new lino, and installed the world's most basic plumbing system. I did all of this on my own. My boyfriend was not convinced by my entrepreneurial vision and initially refused to lend a hand. To this day, I do not know how I got sign-off from the council on my basic food prep hygiene standards, but I did. The food was an entirely different challenge. I wanted to make delicious, interesting food. I went about sourcing different ideas and thought about combinations that were not the usual takeaway food. Every day, I would make fresh fruit kebabs, I made fresh cakes and a range of sandwiches containing ingredients like blue cheese, chicken, and melon. I promised that this combination tasted much better than it sounds now. At least I think that is true. 
But the key was the beautiful semi-commercial coffee machine I had purchased from Jeff at Lafare, the famous cafe in Wellington. Having spent so much time working in different cafes, I knew Jeff and Lafare were the only place to go for what I needed. And he gave me a great deal. This coffee machine may well have been the real love of my life at the time. It was gorgeous and it made the best coffee. The beauty of having the coffee machine in the caravan was that I was the only person doing this. While today we have come to expect coffee carts with great quality espresso machines at events and outdoor festivals, and even sometimes in the street, they simply did not exist in Wellington in 1991. To my knowledge, Minnehaha was the first. However, I had not counted on the hot dog man beside me on the Wellington waterfront, I soon realised that most people really wanted only very basic food. The hot dog man made an absolute killing day after day. I did not. Then one day, there was a festival on the waterfront, and this completely turned things around. I was setting up in the morning, unaware of what was going on outside my front door. When I opened the side window and service area of the caravan, I was gobsmacked to find a queue of people snaking their way across the road and down the street. There must have been at least a hundred people. What did these people want? They wanted coffee. Aha! I had cracked the code. I now knew what the public wanted from me, and Minnehaha. The real challenge, however, was that it was a caravan. It had to be moved every day from the waterfront location to my flat in Aro Valley. Because I'm blind, I'm not allowed to drive cars, at least not legally. The only option was for me to hire someone who could tow the caravan each day to and from the location. A wonderful woman answered my ad and conscientiously carried out the task day after day. However, one day her poor old car just blew up. The caravan was extremely heavy and where I lived in Aro Valley was up a very steep hill. I eventually had to accept the fact that having a mobile business that relied on a car to get it from A to B was a real challenge for me in my wee business. I had to rethink my strategy. Then along came the summer Shakespeare in the botanical gardens. For several weeks, I was able to park up the caravan in the one spot. There was a steady stream of customers in need of food as well as coffee. I had also been very lucky to secure an alcohol license for the period of the show and served alcohol too. At this point, when things looked like a success, my boyfriend decided to step up and help. Hmm, boys. I decided that while my experiment in self-employment had been a success, I had much more to learn. I realised that even if I were to be an entrepreneur, I would need great support. I could not really do something like this entirely on my own. I would need others to be with me on any future vision. I wrapped up the operation after the summer Shakespeare. Some friends who had worked in hospitality for many years offered to buy the business off me and then relaunched it as the new, and yes, improved, rocket caravan. I was back to the drawing board. What could I do? What did I really want to do? I had always been interested in the idea of working in the media as a journalist. This was partly fueled by the knowledge that my grandfather had been a journalist, and partly by my love of communication. However, when my sight was diagnosed and I had started to encounter many challenges, I had let go of that dream. I did not know any blind journalists, so was not sure if it was a viable option for me. 
I also now knew that I needed to think really creatively about how I could earn money in a way that would work well for me in terms of both my passion and my interests as well as my sight. I decided to enrol in a weekend workshop that taught basic acting and presenting skills for television. It was run by the fabulous Sandy Beverly and Oli Mayava from the beloved children's TV show Spot On. I had an absolute ball and to my surprise found that I was quite good at it. Sandy and Ollie were incredibly encouraging. Apparently I was also telegenic, and this was a good thing too. I realised that if I could get work acting in TV commercials or something like that, I could earn a lot more money for one day's work, as opposed to doing hours and hours of waitressing, for example. This seemed like a great new strategy for me to now try out, And frankly, no one else had any real idea of what I could or should or might do for work. Remember, blind women were and still are amongst the most underemployed of any group in our society. The options were not exactly vast or, dare I say it, readily visible to me. Following my heart and my instincts seemed as good a strategy as any. Then one day, I was listening to the radio and heard the then well-known TV presenter in the 80s, Roger Gascoigne, being interviewed. He was talking about a new community TV station called Kapiti TV that had started on the Kapiti Coast, just up from Wellington. Along with its parent company, Saturn Communications, it was the first of its kind in New Zealand, marking the start of massive and transformative change in the media and telecommunications landscape for years to come. My heart leapt, This sounded incredible, and I knew I had to find out more. I wanted to be a part of this in some way. I immediately phoned the directory service, got the number, rang Roger, and the very next day, went out on the train to meet him for a chat. Shortly after that meeting, I started as a volunteer at the new station and moved up to Paikakariki on the Kapiti Coast. My career in media had officially started. And the fact that I was now working in something called television did not seem to be an issue for me either. Surely the visual world was not the exclusive domain of the sighted. Surely I could be a blind presenter or journalist or... Well, time would tell. One thing was for certain. The camera skills, presenting skills, and ability to memorise large amounts of script, all of which I learnt during my time with Kapiti TV, would equip me with one of the most valuable skill sets I have to this very day. The golden-edged pieces of future mini were starting to take shape. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter, coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Minib.